James chapter 3. The message is entitled Spiritual Leadership. I want to look at this whole chapter because I think he, James is making one point. The next chapter he's going to say, where do all these fights and conflicts come from among you? So we want to look at spiritual leadership first. And then we're going to look at next week, Lord willing, James chapter 4. Because if you're involved in church, a church that belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be on the front lines. So if you expected not to get any nicks or bruises, you're in the wrong place. You go join a dead church. You can be comfortable. Nobody, you know, you're still going to have your problems, but there won't be people rocking the boat. But when you're on the front lines, there's challenges. And so it starts with leadership to provide godly direction, godly example. So important. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. Lord, that you gave yourself for us. Lord, that's just hard for us to comprehend. We were your enemies, and you died for us. And you gave us new life, your life. And you've given us the word of God, and then you gave us the Holy Spirit so we can understand it, and we're empowered to walk and follow you. Lord, I pray you give us understanding of the word, and Lord, where you convict us, the power to repent and follow you. We'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe chapter 3 is about leadership because he begins in chapter 1. He says, let not many of you be teachers. And then verse 13, who among you is wise and understanding? So I'm sure James was dealing with a problem that a lot of churches deal with. Old dead wood or traditionalism where people think somehow they deserve to have a position of leadership, especially in James' case. Maybe some of these fellows that he's having trouble with were rabbis before they got saved. Well, if they're a rabbi, of course, they should also have a position of teaching. But James is going to come home again because remember the book of James is about authentic Christianity, living out Jesus Christ, and he's not trying to give us some more rules but in his mind is always his older half-brother, Jesus, remember? They were brothers. They were all the, daughter, the, the sons of, of Mary, but Jesus was not the son of Joseph, which James was. And even though James did not become a believer until after Jesus rose from the dead, all those things came to bear in his life, and he's always thinking, what would Jesus do? What did Jesus do? How did he live out these things so we can follow Spiritual leadership. First one talks about the importance of godly men leading. Not just godly people, godly men in leadership. We live in a day of political correctness, and so we have a lot of people call women pastors. Now, I will tell you this, that there are women that pastor. That just means to shepherd. And Sometimes the uh, SBC that we're a part of loosely uh, gets confused on that, and they say women can't be pastors. Women are pastors. They shepherd their children. They shepherd children in Sunday school. They shepherd other women. That's, just, that's what you do, but women in the Bible are not to be elders or teachers over men. Paul said, I suffer not a woman to teach, nor usurp authority over men. Simple, right? 
In this day of correctness, we want to say, oh, no, well, Paul, he had to think. No, no. Paul got this from the Holy Spirit. Men and women are equal. They are created equal. They are equal. But we have different roles. And women are not to usurp the role of public teacher over men in a church. Just what the Bible says. Doesn't mean they're less. In many cases, they're more, right? And in heaven, there's not going to be men and women. The Bible says that. We're going to be all, I don't know what we're going to be, humans, without that difference. No marriage or giving a marriage. I still want to live close to Christy, but she'll have a lot nicer place than I do, so I want to visit a lot, right? But the importance of godly men leading. But know this, most men are not called to lead in the church either. Not just no women, but not many men. He says there, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing this, that as teachers, you will incur, or he includes himself, we will incur a stricter judgment. Say, whoa, that's right. Now, there are only two offices in the church the Bible talks about, pastor and deacon. There's no elder and pastor and deacon. An elder is a pastor is an elder is a pastor. It's the same thing. We went through a time in our church where we had difficulty learning that, and God taught it to us very clearly. And we called it the time of the quickly chosen elders. We had fellows because we were growing, want to come to our church, and they knew more than we did because they'd been Christians longer, and they were older, and so somehow they got into office. And I think it was God's will because God taught us very clearly during that time that, no, no, a pastor is an elder. So when people come into the church, maybe they just get saved and they look around, they have that kind of personality. They say, well, you know, I want the top job. I remember somebody, a young man getting saved, and you know, I want the top job. Well, Jesus said if you want to be greatest in the kingdom, then you become servant of all. That's where that is. The top job is servant of all. Now, the world looks at things and they say, well, we want to be like the world, and you get a bunch of people doing what you say, and you get in control, and that's power, and that's what that's what the world thinks is the goal. But that's not what Jesus said, and that's why he washed the disciples' feet before he went to the cross. They're arguing about who is the greatest, and he's washing their feet. He takes the place, the lowest servant. But we were taught during those days by the Holy Spirit that, listen, just because the guy's been around a long time, he knows the ins and outs of church, he's got a lot of worldly wisdom, does not mean he's a pastor. In order to be a pastor, you need to be gifted to be a pastor. You need to be qualified, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus 1. And you need to be called. Last couple of years, there's a young man came, and a guy was looking at putting him in the, in the pastorate. And uh, the guy said to me, well, I'm not sure if I'm called or not. I guess we'll find out. I'm like, man, if you're not called, this will eat your lunch and hurt your family. Being a shepherd is a serious deal. And that's why we give our guys that are even trying it out, we give that year before we affirm any elders for them to sit on the board because not only do you get a target painted on your chest by the devil and his minions, but also you're going to get squeezed. And stuff's going to come out, and you're going to see who you are. 
You're going to be tested. It's just the way life is. But James says, listen, does it, not many of you are called to be leading teachers. And then he's going to go on and he's going to talk about the tongue. Because we have so much power, good and bad, related to speech. But he said you'll incur a greater judgment. What does that mean? Well, first of all, judgment in the form of chastening here in this life. We already read a couple months ago in Hebrews chapter 12 that God scourges every son he receives. And one of the areas he scourges all of us in is the area of the tongue. Now, there are a few people that don't have a problem with saying the wrong thing. Those same people that don't have a problem saying the wrong thing because most of us are there, right? The wrong thing coming out. But there's some people, they don't say much, and they have a hard time even saying the right, time, right thing when they're supposed to. So we all have a problem with this tongue. And God knows how to bring that discipline into our life. So there's discipline when we're alive here on earth serving the Lord. And then there's another judgment that's coming, and that's the Bema judgment. The, the Bema judgment, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that's when we stand before the Lord and God rewards us for the things that we did in our life. He has, he's called you on purpose. He saved you on purpose. He gifted you on purpose for a purpose. And then you'll be judged. Were you faithful in that purpose? And it says that every man's work will be tried. Every person's going to stand before Jesus. And it's like the Olympic judges. Now, when you work hard and you get into the Olympics, you want to win a medal. Not many people do it just so they can say they competed. Those aren't winners. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, run to win. He said, I beat my body daily and make it my slave so that I would win. That one day Jesus might say to us, to you personally, well done, faithful servant. That's the point. But he said in 1 Corinthians 3, there's going to be a fire, not a literal fire, but your work's going to be tested. Of what kind of work it was. Was it for yourself? Was it worldly? Was it wood, hay, stubble? That kind of burns before the fire. Or was it gold, silver, precious jewels, precious stones? It'll be manifest in that day. And what do we do with the crowns that we win? We give them to Jesus because he is worthy of all of our glory. But to, but to have something, but to have something, because we know it's God working in us. It's not our own flesh that gets this reward. It's God working in us when we yield to him, when we allow him to fill the spirit and we're found faithful and he gives us crowns and we have something to give back to him for all that he's done for us. And so there's two kinds of judgment. There's chastening here that we all receive. And then there's eternal reward that we all have opportunity for. We belong to the Lord. David prayed in Psalm 141. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Even godly Paul confessed, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. It goes from here because if you're an elder, you're a teacher. It says that the difference between an elder and a deacon in many cases, besides other giftedness, is that elders, pastors, are gifted to teach. They're apt to teach. doesn't mean that deacons are not as good 
as elders. They're just different roles, just like husbands and wives. Different roles. And because the power of the, the, the tongue is so powerful, he says, gives this instruction now that we need to listen to. And this is not time for pitchfork Christianity, by the way. You know, that's where pastor throws out a load of feed and you go, well, that's for so-and-so. You know, Mrs. Jones needs that. Mr. Jones needs that. No, no, you allow the word of God to have its work in your life. Because all of us have this challenge. Now, normally what we do is when we mess up, we can be like the world. We can be the flesh and just say, oh, well, I'm human. I'm just human. No, no, we recognize it as sin. The difference between a Pharisee and a Christian is that a Pharisee compromises, he covers it up, and he justifies it. But a Christian is always confessing his sin. Because as the Lord forgives us, 1 John chapter 1, you say you have no sin, you lie and you don't do the truth. But if we confess our sin, that's what we do as believers. We're always confessing our sin. What is the result of that process in our life? Well, he's always forgiving us our sin. And it says he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he writes in the second chapter, 1 John, little children, I write these things that you sin not. It's not so, well, I can just sin, do what I want because you can forgive me. Paul said in Romans 6, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live in any longer? But he goes on chapter 2, he says, I write these things to you, little children, that you sin not. But when you sin, remember, you have an advocate with the Father. You have an attorney, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He can speak for you because he paid for you. He paid for those sins. But what is the result in your life when he keeps forgiving you over and over and over? Well, if you're a believer, you just love him more and more. And your heart doesn't become more callous. It becomes more sensitive so that he can direct you. But he takes some time here to talk about the tongue. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle also the whole body. Anybody here ever lied? Oh, yeah, everybody. The Bible says everybody's a liar. We've all lied. We start out from the womb lying. We cry when we're not hungry and we just want attention. We lie. We've all stumbled in our mouth. In verses 2 through 4, we see about the power of the tongue to direct. Think about that. People talk about great orders. There have been wicked orders that were great. Adolf Hitler. And there have been orators that preach the gospel that have been great. D.L. Moody, Billy, Billy Sunday, Billy Graham. The power of speech. The power to be able to communicate. And he's just recognizing this power. Now, if we put bits into the horse's mouths so they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Now, the goal for a horseman is not to live with the harshest bit he can get in his mouth. That's not the goal. The goal is that horse have a very, very soft mouth, and you need very little to direct that horse. In Psalm 32.8, there's an amazing picture that God gives us. He said, we put bits in the horse's mouths, otherwise we'll run right over the top. You have to control them. But God says, I would guide you with mine eye upon you. 
Anybody that knows horses knows if you can find a really good cutting horse, all you got to do is point that horse to the right cow and the work is done. You just got to hang on. That's what God wants in our lives. He doesn't want to be yanking us around, having us fighting the bit all the time. He wants to guide us with his eye upon it. Just say, no, over there, I want you to go there. That it's not circumstances that have to control us, but Colossians 3.15 says, let the peace of Christ rule and reign in your heart. That you get so sensitive to the Holy Spirit, you can just say, before you even think something right or wrong, say, you know, I'm sorry, for some reason I don't have peace about that. That's someone that's listening to the Holy Spirit. That's allowing the Holy Spirit to guide. That's what we need in leaders. Those that are guided by the Holy Spirit. That are listening. And not just saying, you know, there's so many believers even walking around saying, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? Well, it may not be wrong for somebody else, but is God giving you that direction? Is that peace coming from him? He said, look at the ships. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, they're directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, but it boasts great things. See, we think, well, our words. We say, we say that old-fashioned rhyme, I don't know if it's Mother Goose, but sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. That is false. That is false. Some of you know, you remember from, as a little child, an aunt or an uncle or a mom or a dad, they just said that cutting thing and it still hurts you today. Why? Because it revealed that person's heart towards you. And they say, oh, what difference does that make? I've heard people say that. Because the Bible says when somebody is injured, you go talk to them. Well, that was a long time ago. Politicians have a hard time with that today because they're always filming them and recording them. But you said this. That was last week. That's what unsaved people do. Now, I'm not saying all politicians are not believers. But when you see somebody saying, you know what, I was wrong, that's different. But they don't say that. They color it well, you know, blah, blah, and they just go over here. And yet they're on tape. Words mean things. And it doesn't have to be just cussing and swearing. We can use words that cut and hurt deeply that last a lifetime. Very small thing, but very powerful. We've all experienced that. But this tongue is very small, but it has the power to direct a life. Verses 5 through 7, it has the power to defile and destroy. So the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it boasts of great things. See how great a force is set aflame by such a small fire. We experienced that last week here, didn't we? Smoke all over the place from someplace clear down and first in New Mexico and then later some fires in Colorado. And you just look around at this beetle kill we've got and we know it takes this much and a right wind on a dry day and that whole thing could explode up there, right? Our, our camp would become a whole burning offering for the Lord. We had, I had to deal with that in my heart a few years ago because the fire, there's a fire and it's really bad dry summer. Remember, it was the first year we had the camp and there was a fire a mile from the camp. I said, okay, Lord, it's yours. Didn't take much. Could be a cigarette butt flicked out a window. Somebody just leaving a little campfire and all of a sudden the whole forest is on fire. That's the same power our tongue has. We have to recognize that. 
And so when you get that urgency, you just want to say that word to that person. And ladies, well, somebody says, you should have said this to them. Yeah. No. How often do we want to take words back? Somebody came to an old priest, some woman came to an old priest and wanted to uh, have forgiveness because she'd been gossiping around her about her old priest and she'd like to take it back. He said, took a pillowcase out with down feathers in it. He shook it out in the wind. He said, well, you can get it back when you collect all those feathers back. We can forgive someone but the damage sometimes cannot be undone. Scientists say that once words go forth, if you had a machine, you could capture all those words, even words that were spoken centuries ago. You see, Jesus doesn't need that, does he? Jesus said that we're gonna be held accountable for every word that is spoken. Hmm, looks like we need forgiveness, don't we? And we realize the kind of power and injury we've been caused. We need to concentrate on the Lord so that we become people of grace, not just people of correctness. How often people have the right doctrine, they use it as a hammer to bludgeon other people. Well, I, I, it's right, so I can do this. No, no, no. Paul wrote the Ephesians speaking the truth in love. Why? Because that's how Jesus did it. Was Jesus sometimes very forthright? Yes, he was. It may have seemed harsh to those people, but it was always from a heart of love. Same reason he spoke in parables. The same reason he confronted people in their sin, because he loved them, not just so he could be right. There's the power in verses 2 to 4, the power of the tongue direct. Verses 5 through 7, the power of the tongue to defile and destroy. And verses 8 through 12, the power to poison and pollute. No one, excuse me, verse five, so also the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set on flame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. It sets on fire the course of your life, and it's set on fire by hell. It's dangerous. This tongue is dangerous. So he's saying that teachers need to be spirit-filled, spirit-controlled men because they can destroy people's lives, especially from their place of authority. I realize that. I can come speaking somebody to confront them very softly, and I know because if they recognize me as a pastor, it comes like a hammer, and I don't even intend that sometimes. That's why the Bible says, so many times we need to be gentle, like Jesus. Jesus, gentle and meekness is not weakness, it's power under control. It's interesting that this uh, tongue was set behind the teeth. It should have a good prison to control it, but you can't control it, can you? And it says it can destroy the path of your life. Nobody can tame it. The fellow that played Kramer in the sitcom, uh, Jerry Seinfeld, after the sit sitcom was over, was being heckled by some, some black fellas, I guess, in a club one time, and he was partly drunk, and so he came off some racial slurs. 
and later when confronted, because it's recorded again, he said, well, that just wasn't me. Oh, no, that was you. Just because you got squeezed and what came out wasn't wonderful, wasn't good, doesn't mean it wasn't you. It's kind of interesting that one of my favorite football coaches at the University of Iowa was Joe Glenn. I like Joe because he looked like me. Good-looking guy. He's actually older, so I guess I look like him. I don't know how that worked out. And I know that because sometimes I get mistaken. I'd be on my walk, and Joe believed in walking a lot, and old guys driving their cars, hey, coach, hey. <laughs> I went to Alvaby's one night, and a young man that attended our church occasionally came to the Christian table, and he said, well, hey, coach, how you doing? I said, I'm doing good because I was a coach, but I wasn't his coach. He came back later, Pastor, I'm so embarrassed. I thought you were Joe Glenn. I get that, but I didn't get a deal on my bill. But remember when Utah ran the score up on Wyoming that time? I remember because when it was all done, instead of shaking hands, Joe gave the other coach the finger and then went confronted about it because he didn't get in trouble, which he should have. He said this. That wasn't me. And immediately I had to reply, it wasn't me either. Who did it? Joe did. We can, when things happen because we get squeezed, and I use this, you may get tired of it, but you need to understand, we need to understand. You take a tube of toothpaste, give it to me. Wade wouldn't like this, but we take the top off and we step on it right here in the platform. What comes out? Foot? No. Toothpaste. Why? That's what was inside. When you get squeezed by trial and bile comes out and poison comes out your mouth, that was you. And so we can sing with the, the hymn writer, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch. And sometimes we still act wretched. Even though the Bible says we've been dressed in the righteousness of Christ, God looks at us like we're perfect, we still have this old flesh. What are we supposed to be doing? Paul said, I beat my body daily and make it my slave. When it gets out of line, I beat my body. I got to get back in control of it. I need to be riding this horse. We have a challenge, don't we? Because he goes on to say, no one control it. Verse 8. No one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. Every species of beasts and birds and reptiles, creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. No one can do it. Why? It wasn't intended to be tamed. It only does what the heart tells it to do. So your flesh is in charge. It's going to be saying the same old things the world said, they said in the world before. Same old stuff. You can't control it. The heart controls it. He says it defiles everything. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. You say, but, but hold it. That politician, he's not godly. I had a buddy, Gary Cravens, is with the Lord now, and He's like one of those fellows the grace of God could live with that few others could. But I remember him telling me something that I had to live with. The Bible says, don't speak evil of your rulers. 
doesn't mean you can't recognize where they're going. No, it doesn't mean that. It says don't speak evil of them. I've often thought about it with some of the rulers we've had. Do we ever have a ruler as bad as King David who murdered his own champion so he could have his wife to be his wife? That's wicked. And yet, because of his heart and his willingness to repent, God calls him after his own heart. Don't speak evil of your rulers, even if you disagree with them. The word of God has a, an effect on a believer's heart. We listen to the word. We understand how dangerous the tongue can be and what we're supposed to do. And what, what do we do? We let the word of Christ rule in our heart. Not only his peace, but his word. And it's not enough to know the rules. You have to feed on the word and spend time with Jesus every day because you can know the right thing and still do the wrong thing. Verse 10. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Can a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. And yet sometimes we act like we just turn it off and turn it on, right? That we got little faucets. And we understand that you may think you're turning it off and on, but those little ears around you are hearing and those unsaved people, and they see when you get mad. And that's why we have this opportunity when it's hard. When there's an amazing trial and the whole world would say, oh, I understand why you did that. And they give you a pass. But there's an opportunity, 1 Peter 3.15, when we're in trial, to have an opportunity where other people ask you of the hope that you have and you can give them an answer in meekness and fear because it's God at work in you and not you. But you just let that mouth go. It'll destroy your testimony. It'll set on, on, on fire your course of life because God, Satan wants to destroy you. He's a liar and a murderer from the beginning. You can't put out sweet and bitter at the same place. So what do you have to do? You're going to have to have the discipline of the word and the, and the discipline of grace in your life. And we need to feed on the word of God. Colossians 4, 6 says, Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how to be a blessing to people. How do you do that? The psalmist said in Psalm 119, 9 through 11, How shall a young man make his way straight? By taking heed according to thy word. Okay, we get that. Verse 11 says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. You say, well, I just can't memorize. That's because you don't want to memorize. The same people that say, well, I can't memorize, I'm too old. You know the sports scores, you know engine stuff, you know golf stuff, you know decorating, whatever your thing is, you know how to get that stuff down. The problem is it's just not a focus. When you want victory over something in your life, you get focused enough to get it in the Word and you study hard to get it in your life so that you can be a blessing to God and a reflection of his grace to others around you. Goes on to the last portion here, 13, to the end of the chapter. He comes back to this idea about 
Elders, how do we pick elders? Who's a wise and understanding among you? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. I like that. You see, Jesus was gentle. He was hanging on the cross, and those wicked priests were walking in front of him, mocking, saying he saved himself. He saved others, but he can't save himself. That was exactly right. But the old gospel song says he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world. He could have done more than that. He spoke the world into existence. He could have spoken it out. But he submitted to that. That is the power of grace that's available to you and me, not to have to get even. Not to say that word to straighten somebody out. Not to worry about being the right one in the room all the time, having the last word, the last argument. The gentleness of wisdom. The Bible says it's a glory for kings to overlook a matter. It's a king's discretion for him to just pass over it. We don't have to be offended all the time. We have to have a great heart towards God, but we got to develop some hide, folks. We can't let every little thing offend us. As I said before, a church where Jesus Christ is in charge is a full contact sport because you're on the front lines. And it always draws a mixed multitude. You may be part of the mix. It's football. You don't go out for football and not expect to get a couple cleats and somebody hit you hard. Get some bruises. It's what it is. But the Bible says, great peace have they that love God's law and nothing shall offend them, turn them out of the way, stop them. Does it make it right for the person that offended you? No, it doesn't make it right. But you don't have to respond. I don't have to respond. We can actually be like Jesus. We actually have that opportunity and choose grace rather than retaliation. So let's find some men. This is the same place that in Acts. Now, we think that James might have been one of the first books that was written, so we don't have Paul's instruction on what does it look like, all those delineations of the character responsibilities in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1. He just says the same thing, basically, that was said in Acts. You know, that in Acts chapter 6, they needed some men to make sure that the widows from the dispersion that there in Jerusalem, when the, when the Holy Spirit came down and the church was started, some of those Widows from around the world were being neglected. Only Jewish widows were being taken care of. He said, choose out from among you men that are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Not just knowledge, but wisdom from the Scripture, God's wisdom. And then he's going to go on to say here in verses 14 through 16, this is the worldly man. We have the godly man. That's the man that is full of wisdom and gentleness. Because he doesn't have to have his way. He's just looking for God's way. And he trusts that when it's time, God's way will be made apparent. But then there's the worldly man. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes from, from above, but it's earthly, natural, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder at every evil thing. Now we can work backwards from that verse. We've been in a situation before in our church. We were getting ready to build. We had uh, the plans. We, ha we owned the land. We're ready to go, and yet we just weren't making any progress. 
And we had some of those quickly chosen elders. And finally, we just couldn't understand it. What's going on? We, we couldn't move forward without all of us being in unity, and yet we weren't in unity. So Rich Tremaine just said one time in the meeting without prompt from anybody, I have a question I have to ask. Here we are. We, we seem like we can't make progress. It seems like there's confusion. During that time of those elders, they had a big idea, and that was that elders are to control everything. And so they bought two steel lockers, and they locked up the paper plates and coffee cups because that's important and the coffee pot and the coffee so somebody couldn't just come in willy-nilly and have some fellowship. You know, we don't want that going on. And you know what happened to the rest of the church? Pretty soon we couldn't hardly find people to work in the nursery because the people were following the elders and everything just kind of began to shut down because after all, we got to be in control. No. Well, Rich, we couldn't understand why we're going forward. And so Rich went around the room. And he asked this question. We believe that God has called us to build this building and we should be moving forward. Or is this just Paul's idea? Or is this just our idea? Is this God or us? And to the man, every one of them said, no, we believe this is God. So he asked the second question, so what's the problem? And the two fellows that were pretty quickly, God took them out of here, said one said, well, I'm just not going to spend any more money. I'm not going to lose money on this. In other words, we have to do the ministry. We got to be the providers. And the other guy said, well, I don't want to be embarrassed by getting something started out there and then everybody laugh at us because we can't finish. Because looking at our strength, they couldn't see the ability to do it. You know why? They were looking at the wrong guy. Our provision comes from the Lord. He's the one that leads us. And there was no fight. We just said, oh, well, obviously we can't move forward. So we just stayed. And over the next couple of months, God just let him out. He pruned the vine. My son David and most pastors that go to established church have to deal with this. You go in there and you find out who the dead wood is. And they're the guys that meet you at the door and they're all hunky-dory to meet you and they shake your hand. But as soon as a little trouble comes out, you're going to ruin this church. And yet the church is growing. Well, how am I ruining the church? And you come to meetings. I've been in one like this, actually two in 32 years where they're hollering and screaming at me. And I shut her down right then. We don't play that game here. This is not God's church where we have to holler at one another. And yet some churches, this church before I came, that was the regular business meeting. We'll settle this in the parking lot. Oh, really? In that mature? My early years, we had, we just talking one day. We're just talking. And it wasn't even with the leaders, just some guys sitting around. And they're thinking, well, you know, if we, it'd be nice to build a building someday. If we built a building and one guy says, well, I'll tell you what, we better have a basement. I'm like, okay. Because the basement, that's the most economic part of the building is the basement. Okay. And he started getting orchestrated about it and all red in the face and angry. I'm like, wow. Okay, we'll have a basement. But guys, we're not even talking about a building. What's going on? An angry man. An angry man just needs an excuse. Needs an excuse. Squeeze somebody like that? Really? We're in, we don't have anything on paper yet. And yet, by the time God pruned the, van, the, the vine down enough that we were uh, actually the building process, people say, you build a building, you'll destroy the church. It was the most wonderful time in the life of our body, wasn't it? I still, every time we'll have prayer and praise tonight here at 5, hope you can be here. 
And there's not a prayer meeting that goes by that somebody that was involved in the building of this building doesn't pray. Lord, thank you for our shelter. Thank you for this place we can worship you out of the Wyoming wind once in a while, out of the cold. It was a time of discipleship. It was a time of growing because people had their eyes on the Lord. We, we were at times, we didn't know when the next dollar was coming from, and so we'd stop and wait, and we'd have a prayer meeting, and the Lord gives a little more, and we'd proceed on again. We didn't have to figure it out. Just follow but wherever there's bitter jealousy and self-submission in your heart, we begin to lie. How do we lie? Well, we think being the right answer is equal to driving it down everybody else's throat. I'm right, therefore, get out of my way. We can do that as dads, can't we? Because I said so. Mm-hmm. We can do it in church. We say, well, I've got the right doctrine, therefore, I don't have to love people. I don't have to love other Christians that don't have the same doctrine, doctrinal statement as I do. I can be mean or ornery if I want to because they're wrong. That gives me the right. We need to understand when we're feeling like that, with guys, I don't know about girls, but with guys, it's right here in the jaw. You go like this, Right? Don't mess with me, man. Understand something. That's from the devil. Every single time. Don't you say, oh, I've got a righteous cause. This guy did this. Well, I'm protecting my family. No, you never have a right to have that kind of mean, nasty spirit. But we do, don't we? We do get that once in a while. Protective of our stuff. What are we saying? We're, we're just showing that we don't really trust the Lord can take care of us. Or can we trust our soul to a faithful creator in doing what is right? This wisdom is not that which comes from a down from above, but it's earthly, natural, and demonic. You'll get most of the world to say, oh, well, yeah, that's how I'd react too. After all, God takes care of those who take care of themselves. That's in the Bible someplace. Yeah, it's in the book of Levitations, not found there, Right? No, the Bible says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, because he's my shepherd. He leads me. He feeds me. He makes me lie down. Even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I don't have to fear any evil because why? The shepherd is with me. Not me. The shepherd. For wherever, wherever jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there is disorder and every evil thing. If there's problem in a church... And I wonder if that's what James is writing to. There's some disorder, and it just seems like, what is going on? He said, there's probably something in the life of the believers and the leaders of that church that's not right. He says, because the godly man looks like this. The wisdom from above looks like this. First, it's pure. How's it pure? In its motivations. It's not about my idea or the other fellow's idea, or the church's idea. That's where, you know, leadership in church gets all messed up. You have a congregational church. They say, well, it's American. It's representative. Everybody gets a vote. Oh, joy. We just need to know what the people are thinking. I'm really not as concerned about that as what God is thinking. 
that mean we care less about people? No, we care about people, but the only way to help people, God's people, is when we're doing what God wants us to do. So our focus needs to be God, not people. God. It's pure in his motivations because we're just a servant. We've had those times again in this building where we thought, whew, I don't know if it's going to happen or not. And then we had to go back to square one and say, hold it. Is this God or not? Well, we believe it's God. Well, let's wait and see what happens. It's an adventure. It's an adventure when it looks like there's no way it can happen, but you're convinced, no, this was God. In your family life, in church life, you can rest. Because it wasn't about you, it's what God was doing. So first, it's peace. It's pure. And then secondly, it's peaceful. Thirdly, King James says, easy to be entreated. You can talk to somebody about it. That's what I love about our upper board. You bring these ideas in, and people have ideas about ministry. And so we bring them in, and we always go back to the Bible. And we can be reasonable about it, right? We can hear one another out. We don't have to run over one another and cut them off or argue with them. Be reasonable. Why? Because it's not about winning. It's not about the art of the deal. It's not about the art of compromise. It's about finding out what is God doing. Is this God leading? Is this God at work? We can be reasonable because we don't have a dog in the fight, right? If I get my dog out of the fight, then not a big deal. What is God doing? Sometimes no is just as exciting as yes. One of our elders come and say, you know, I, I don't have a reason, but I don't have peace. Well, then what do we do? Beat him up. Make sure he comes around to our way of thinking. No. We stop and we pray and we thank God. Lord, thanks for slowing us down. What are you trying to tell us? Then it says, full of mercy and good fruits. Isn't that the Lord Jesus? They bring the woman in John 8, taken in the very act of adultery. Probably they set her up. That's how wicked they were. And they say, the Bible said that the losses, she should be turned stone. What did Jesus do? He just sat down, ignored them. How often do we think, you know, oh, the world's bringing this accusation. We've got to have an answer. Jesus ignored them. He wrote in the dirt. Tradition says he began to write the law. Then he says, stands up and he says, all right, whoever has no sin, cast the first stone. And they went away from the oldest to the youngest. Why? Because the longer you live, the more sin you have. She finally looked up with her tear-stained face. And he said, where are, your, where are your accusers? He said, they're all gone. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Full of mercy. Oh, that God would give us the grace to begin to look at people in mercy and not criticism. That's what he wants us to grow in his grace. I have friends that just bless my heart because they're able to just speak to people and love people just, and I say, I want to be like that because that's Christ in them. And then it says unwavering. They don't get pushed around by the world or by public opinion. The truth is the truth. No compromise. And lastly, it says without hypocrisy. They don't have to wear a mask. They don't have to hide. 
consistent Christian loving. And then the last verse says this. And the, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What is that? Well, when you sow a seed and you sow a grape seed, you expect to get grapes. So an apple seed, you expect to get an apple tree that produces apples. When you want to reap righteousness, you have to sow righteousness. Who are the peacemakers? That's not compromisers. Those are politicians. The peacemakers are the ones that bring the gospel of peace. They speak the gospel because the gospel is mercy. Jesus said, there's room at the cross. Come to me, all you that are weak and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. But he said, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's the gospel. That's the invitation to the gospel. And there's only one way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. The gospel is not the art of compromise. It is the truth spoken in love. Father, we thank you for your love for us. Lord, that we might all become full of mercy and good fruits. Fruit that remains because we are sowing the gospel seed. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to provide and, and, and protect our leaders. That each one, we might be leaders that reflect the grace and the truth of the gospel. So that our people would continue to be the people they are, precious in your sight, a people of the word, a people of the grace of Jesus Christ. It will give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.